This podcast is brought to you by Podcast Nation. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to The Real Reel, where I take you behind the Instagram reel and into the real lives of entrepreneurs, content creators, and anyone who inspires me and may inspire you too. I'm your host, Natalie Barbu, and let's get into it. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast with me, Natalie Barbu. Today's episode is a solo episode, and it is probably the one that I am most excited to talk about because it means that it's real and it actually happened. And I can't believe it. And I feel like I'm going to have to do a part two to this because as I was writing the outline for this, I was like, oh my God, this is two separate episodes already in this outline. So I just kind of want to jump into it because I feel like I have so much to say and I want this to be concise and I want it to be clear and I want this to actually be valuable. So if you guys are new here or this is your first time ever stumbling across this podcast, I am the founder of a startup. The startup is called Rella, and we launched Rella in January of 2022. It's been almost a year. And I had started working on Rella the previous year. That previous summer is when I started actually working on it. But I had the idea September of 2019. So over a year before I launched it was when I initially had the idea. And so I kind of want to talk about the origin story of it. If you guys are, you know, avid followers of mine, you guys have listened to the podcast a bunch of times, you guys have watched me on YouTube, follow me on Instagram, you probably know a little bit of this story because I did document it. And I was building pretty much in public. But I really want to make this episode very clear, like a roadmap of Rella thus far. And I also think I should do this every year just to kind of see how far we've grown and kind of give you guys more insight on the direction that we're going. And Rella is incredibly community oriented and community centered. So I want to make sure that we never lose that. And so this podcast is just another platform where I can kind of share more information about Rella, but also keeping you guys involved and making sure that you feel like you are a part of it because you are, you know, we are building this for creators and we want this to be a tool for you guys. And if you are not a part of it, then what are we doing? So I just want to make that clear and and kind of take us back to the beginning. So September 2020, this was COVID times. I was already out of New York by then. So it was the very end. I remember it was like September 30th when I had this idea, like something around there. So end of September of 2020, it's been two years now. So I had the idea because I was actually working on my agency. I had an agency. It was called Barbu Agency. Very original, I know. And it was called Barbu Agency. And pretty much what we did was it started with me giving one-on-one consultations to influencers and creators and sitting down with them for an hour and really assessing their channels, their content, how they can grow. This was when YouTube was really much bigger. Like everyone was trying to get on YouTube. TikTok was not really a thing at this point. I mean, it wasn't as like the scale of what it was today by any means. It was still like an app where little kids danced and lip synced. So this was when I was really consulting on YouTube. And so I would give creators, you know, I would look at their channels, I would look at their analytics, I would give them really personalized advice on how to grow. And I helped a lot of creators grow. I had spoken with over 100 creators while I was doing this. I had recurring consultations. I was doing really well with this. And then I decided to kind of expand to brands and kind of do like slight PR, but mostly consultations with brands as well with how they can work with creators or how they can kind of treat themselves more as creators rather than businesses so that they can relate to a larger audience. And I would also help them work with creators in the sense of like creating influencer marketing campaigns for them, helping them with their social media, coaching them with social media and all of that stuff. So during that time, I had someone that was working for me, Hani. I actually texted her today. So that's kind of funny that we still are very much great friends. She has her own agency now and is literally killing it, doing so well. But she was working for me at the time. And I remember her actually planting this seed in my head where she was like, I use so many like 
social media management tools and all of them suck. And I, at the time, was also feeling the same way where I was coaching these creators. I was helping these brands out. And I always felt like I couldn't recommend anything to them in terms of a tool to use for social media. There was nothing I felt that really understood the creator's perspective rather than the social media manager, the brand perspective. So there were tools like Later and Planoli that I was, you know, I had experimented with. And of course, there's like Hootsuite and all of these planning tools. But again, they were specifically made for managers. And I didn't feel like they really covered what creators needed, especially creators that were doing this as a business. So as I was doing it full time, I had quit my job, was doing it full time for a few years now. And I was using so many different tools. So I would make content calendars on Excel, but then I wanted to like plan my feed and actually auto post. So I would plan my feed on Planoli and try to auto post on there. I would track my sponsorships on ClickUp and like communicate with my manager through ClickUp, which is a project management tool. But I had also used Trello and Asana and Notion. Like I tried all of these other tools, didn't like them. And then I tracked my revenue on Excel. So I would mark like when it was paid and I would kind of like keep a running calendar of like all my sponsorships on Excel. But then deliverables would be sent on ClickUp, but then I would have to auto post it on Planoli to plan my Instagram feed. YouTube was different. TikTok was different. Like everything was different. So then that's why I use Excel to create a content calendar. And it just felt so inefficient. And then, oh, don't even get me started on contracts. I didn't even save my contracts because I was like, this is just so many different tools that I was using. I didn't know where to save them. So sometimes I would upload them to ClickUp. Sometimes I wouldn't. Like it was just, it was honestly a mess. I had my content spread out. I had my sponsorships spread out. Nothing was cohesive. Nothing was concise. It took me so long to plan content. And I just felt I was like, this is not a business. Like I was running my agency as a business. And then I felt like my content creation side of things, I was like, this is a business, but like this doesn't feel like I'm running a business because it's so disorganized and there's nothing out there for someone like me, which is a content creator. So that is what sparked the idea where I was like, why is there nothing out there that's like better for this? And I remember someone telling me about this tool called HoneyBook. So HoneyBook is like an all-in-one software tool for freelancers. So think like wedding planners, photographers, event planners, like people like that. They use HoneyBook so that they can send invoices. They have templated contracts. They can store all of their like project details on HoneyBook. And I thought it was genius. I was like, why is there nothing like this? but for content creators. And I looked and I looked and all that it was leading me to was really like plan only and later, which again is great for planning content, but nothing else. You know, all you can do is plan and kind of like see your analytics. Whereas I envisioned a tool that you could plan your content and yes, your content can live there, but you can also track your brand deals. You can also keep track of your revenue. You can have contracts and invoices and everything in one place. And that's what I wanted to build for content creators. So once I have this idea, like if you know me, if I have an idea, I'm running with it immediately. Like that day, the day I think Hani talked to me or at least that week where she was expressing her frustration with social media management tools, I was like, this is a genius idea. I'm going to build this. And so I started writing on a Google Doc what I wanted this tool to look like. Like what did I want it to be? So I started writing it. It mainly came from like a planning perspective but like from a creator point of view. So a place where you can track the required hashtags and your required tags that you need to have. And like when the preview date was due and a to-do list with that item. And like, also I wanted to track my goals because I feel like when people are goal oriented, they tend to grow more. And that's what I had noticed with like my consultations. So with my consultations, we would track goals, but of course everything was done on like the notes app on your phone or like an Excel sheet. And I just felt like you were held more accountable with that. And so I wanted a place where I could track my goals. Again, my notes app was being used for random notes or like Google Drive. So I wanted to track all of my notes or keep track of all my notes in one place for social media, have a list of content ideas for social media. Like I just wanted everything to be in one place. And I wanted it to make sense. Like I wanted it to be customized specifically for creators. So like, yeah, social media managers can use Rella. And we actually have a lot of social media managers on Rella that keep track of other brands. But I wanted this tool to be for creators and that was what I was building it for. So I created a big Google Doc with everything that I was envisioning and then I started talking to other creators. So before I started building this, before I started figuring out what to do, I just started talking to the creators that I had consulted. I started talking to my friends and I'm not kidding, that week that I had this idea, 
I saw someone on social media post on their story. Why isn't there a tool like this? I feel like I'm drowning. Like there's so many different tools that I'm using. Like content creators need something that's like an all-in-one platform. And that like really, really, really sparked like I need to build this. Like this is not just me that has this feeling anymore. I need to build this. And I saw that the way that social media was going, like this at the time when I had this idea, TikTok was starting to get really popular because it was peak COVID. And I saw how many more people were becoming content creators. And in the beginning of COVID, people were like, this is the end of influencers, you know, like they're not getting their brand deals anymore. Bounced back quickly in like the next two months. And ad revenues started going up again. People started working with brands more and more and more creators started coming in. Like this is when like Charlie D'Amelio was like really, really on the up and up, like growing, growing, growing. And other creators were doing the same. And I just always remember thinking like, in your face, people that would tell me that social media is oversaturated and that creators can't grow anymore because it's not like people that just started in 2020 are now the most popular social media creators on the platforms. So I just like saw the future of the creator economy not going anywhere. And I saw it growing. And I, I still viewed the creator economy and social media and influencers we're still in the baby stages. We are still in the beginning stages. And some people might disagree with me, but I think that this is still the very beginning. Like it's incredibly naive to think that a market this big with this many people that are consuming content would just like disappear. Like I don't think we're ever going to be like, actually, I'm done with social media. I'm going to just like watch TV shows and and movies all day now. Like, no, people are going to watch YouTube. People are going to watch TikTok and that's not going away. And what supports those platforms is the creators on it. So I do think it's going to be harder to grow on some platforms, but I think then a new platform will come up and there will be new creators from there. And I just I just saw the future of the creator economy. Let's talk about styling hair because it is a whole production, especially when you are battling frizz. And take it from me, I live in Miami, Florida. It is about to be summer. I really know frizz, but honestly, I would rather be doing something else like booking a spontaneous vacation to St. Bart's or rewatching the Heirs tour for like the third time. You know, the important stuff. But who actually has time for frizz? Introducing Way's new anti-frizz cream. It is like a superhero for your hair. It provides immediate frizz control that lasts up to 72 hours. I actually brought it on a trip with me and my friend borrowed it and she purchased it right then and there because it was that good. So how does this fit into my hair routine? It is the best thing I could have done for my hair. I am all about saving time and the anti-frizz cream does just that. Plus the Sydney inspired North Bondi scent is so amazing. You can thank bergamot, Italian lemon violet and more. And as someone who is always concerned about heat damage because I definitely use a lot of heat on my hair, this anti-frizz cream provides heat protection, which is such a big relief. And my hair feels so much lighter and looks smoother after using it. Get busy being frizz free with Way's new anti-frizz cream. It's not just about taming frizz. It also provides heat protection up to 450 degrees, reduces and repairs split ends, quenches dry hair with intense hydration. And according to a consumer perception study, 90% of participants agreed that their hair looked less frizzy after using it. I can definitely contest that. And while you're at it, check out Way's other bestsellers like the leave-in conditioner, which I also use, detox shampoo, fragrances, hair oils, and hair gloss. They're all essential for achieving that salon-worthy look at home. So you can frizz free up your schedule with Way. Go to T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com and enter promo code RealReal for 15% off any product. That's T-H-E-O-U-A-I.com, promo code RealReal. Life doesn't happen bi-weekly, so why should payday? The money you earn can be in your hands today as it should with Earnin. Earnin is an app that is changing the game when it comes to getting paid. Imagine having access to the money you've earned as you work, not just waiting for payday. With Earnin, you can access up to $100 per day or up to $750 per pay period. Just download the Earnin app and verify your paycheck. Then access up to $100 a day as you work and leave an optional tip. Any money you access plus tips are automatically repaid from your next paycheck. So think about it. The next time you're planning a special night out, you need a last minute gift for a loved one, or you face an unexpected expense, like maybe a trip to the vet, Earnin has you covered. For me, it's about having the flexibility to handle those surprise expenses that life throws my way. So whether it's unexpected bills or needing to cover rent when things are tight, Earnin gives me peace of mind knowing that I have access to my hard earned cash when I need it most. 
Make Earnin a part of your financial routine and join Earnin's over three and a half million customers who say things like, when I think about Earnin, I think about financial stability, security. It gives me a lot of peace of mind. Download Earnin today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earnin app, type Real Real under podcast when you sign up. It really helps the show, so please don't forget that step. Real Real under podcast. Earnin is a financial technology company, not a bank. Subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. So once I validated my idea by just talking to people, I started figuring out how do I build this? Because If you guys know, I have an engineering degree, so I am an engineer, but I don't have the technical skills to develop an application. I did not code. I was not a computer science major. I was industrial engineering. So it was all about efficiency, which makes sense with what I want to build, but it didn't provide me any of the technical skills to actually build this. So I started just researching. I was like, how much does it cost to build an app? Like literally just Googled how much does it cost to build an app? And of course it depends. Like it's not like, oh, $5,000. Like it just totally depends. And so I started reaching out to people on this one website called TopTail, I believe it's called, where you can find developers. And I think they have like designers and other things for like technical projects on there where you can find contractors and they vet them to make sure that they're actually good. So you don't have to actually like vet them to make sure that they're skilled and they vet them and you can hire them to like help build applications or like help you with your projects. I was incredibly naive. I thought that this was going to be a project that gets handed off to me and I can just put it out there and then it just lives on. I was so naive with the software world and, you know, technology where I was like, oh, no, this is like an ongoing thing. Like, it's not just like a here's your app put it on the app store and never touch it again and like have it work. And I thought, oh, this seems super simple. I could build this in like two months. You know, I I just knew nothing. No, that's not how it works. I started reaching out to these developers and I started realizing they were incredibly expensive. I mean, a lot of them were overseas, which made it a little bit cheaper than the United States, but still incredibly expensive. And I felt like they didn't understand my vision. And I just felt like they didn't understand what I was building. And it it was just kind of like, okay, yeah, I'll, I'll do this. and I'll hand it off to you, which in their defense, that is literally their job. Like, I think I was just looking in the wrong places. Like, I think I thought that this could be a project that just gets handed off to me. But instead, once I started looking more into it and talking to more people, I realized, no, 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 this is a company. Like this is something that is an actual company that like I can grow and work at for years and years and years and and really build this. But in order to do that, I knew that I needed a team. I knew I couldn't just contract someone and have everything be just me. So I started asking around. I was like, okay, I don't want someone just like overseas that I don't know that I never speak with. I want to talk to someone maybe that has like developed other apps before and that they can kind of like show me the ropes. So I did go to NC State. It's a school that really focuses on STEM. And there's so many engineering majors there. And I just knew I was like, there's got to be someone that knows how to develop apps here. So I asked my friend Tochi, shout out Tochi. He is the glue in all of this. He's the glue of like so many relationships in my life. Like (laughs) my best friends in Florida here, I met through him as well. So you know what? He just, he's amazing. I owe him big time (laughs) for honestly, like the trajectory of my life, which is really funny. But I asked Tochi, I was like, do you know anyone that develops apps because I have this idea and I want to bring it to life. And so he, one of his fraternity brothers, actually started a software consultancy where they developed apps for other startups and other companies in Raleigh. And so I was like, perfect. Like, great. We have stuff in common. I can just talk to him and ask him questions. I had no necessarily plans on like bringing him onto my team. I just wanted him to help me. And so I met with him on Zoom, asked him questions. He was the first person I talked to that seemed to be like interested in what I was building seemed like he made it very clear. This is not just a project that I'm going to pass off to you. This is going to have a lot of iterations. It's going to be something that, you know, him and his co-founder and like the designers that they had at the company at the time were going to take a lot of time to build. He's like, code will not be written for a while, actually. Like a lot of stuff goes into it beforehand. And I just felt like it was the first person that actually felt like they wanted to be invested in this and that they really understood, I guess, the necessary steps to bring this to life versus the other contractors that I was talking to just didn't. So that was when I started realizing like, okay, I like this guy. I'm going to start paying his software consultancy to 
help me bring this to life. So we started with the designs, which they had the designers, which are now the designers for Rella, but they had the designers already at their software consultancy and him and his co-founder of the software consultancy were the developers. So they started working with me on this. After about six months of like talking, ideating, designing, maybe it was less than six months. I It was like six months. We decided, they asked me, they came to me and they were like, we want to do this with you. Like we want to be co-founders with you and we want to own the company with you. And it came at a perfect time because it is really when I started seeing the potential of Rella. And I was like, yeah, I need co-founders and I need them to be technical and I need them to help me build this. So they left their software consultancy. They closed all their projects. They started doing Rella full time. I started doing Rella full time shortly after. Like we both started shortly after we decided to work together. We obviously had things that we were like wrapping up and we did Rella full time. And it was really scrappy. They had designers at their software consultancy. And that is how I had met Tess and Natasha, who are the designers of Rella today. They brought them along. And then obviously Connor and his co-founder, which is Nick, came along to Rella. And now us three are co-founders. So that is kind of the origin of the team and Rella. And at this point, I was bootstrapping everything. I was paying them, you know, to help me develop this. Once we became a team, None of us were getting paid. They just had equity in the company and we weren't getting paid. We obviously paid our contractors. So the designers were paid the entire time. No one ever went without a paycheck. They were getting paid for the hours that they were working. But the founders were just taking equity in the company for a very long time. Like it was a long time. We were incredibly scrappy. So we decided to raise a small friends and family round. So we had asked anyone in our network, parents, people around us, if they would invest in Rella and what we were building. And we ended up raising money there. So we, I'll be totally transparent. We raised $100,000 from friends and family. So, you know, people putting in smaller, quote unquote, smaller, because $100,000 is so much money, but smaller checks to invest in Rella. So that's where we raised $100,000 from. $25,000 came from equity-free grants. So we did an accelerator through our university that offered it to NC State students where we got $15,000. And then we got $10,000 because we won a pitch competition. So those were equity-free. Those were non-diluted capital. I put in personal money, $40,000. So I put in forty dollars myself to really like help us grow. So in total, we raised $165,000 in that first initial round, I guess you can say, like a friends and family round. At that time, that $165,000 left us with paying our contractors. So paying the designers, we had a front engineer that also came on in the very beginning that my co-founders had known. And that money went towards them. And then obviously, like any development costs and anything like that. So that's where that happened. That money was not used to pay the founders. None of us were getting paid from that. So that was the first round. We launched the product in January of this year. We had a great response. We were building in public and we were building our community for the longest time. So our community was already pretty solid. And we learned so much from launching. And I think one piece of advice I would give any startup founder is to launch earlier than you think. I wish that we had actually launched with an even earlier, more basic version. I think we did, like our MVP was pretty fleshed out, which MVP stands for minimum viable product. Start with something super scrappy, super manual, super scrappy. It does not need to be high tech. It's 100% not going to be perfect. So just launch with something that is just gets your foot in the door, you know, like just start getting feedback from your customers. So we launched in January with pretty much just a planning tool was just helping you plan your social media content. And I mean, we didn't even have like an analytics tracker yet. Like we could tell like how many new users we had, but like we didn't really know where they were going, what they were doing on the app. We just cared a lot about acquisitions. So getting more people downloading and and creating an account and growth than like analytics and retention, which I guess in the beginning, like, yes, you care about acquisition, but I highly recommend you also care about retention and your data to run experiments on. Because if you don't, then you don't know what your users are actually doing and what they like about the company. And then it's really going to be hard to prioritize what should come next. So that was another kind of like mistake that we made was that we weren't tracking things accurately or truthfully tracking things, period, in the very, very beginning. But we definitely had a solid community. They gave us feedback in real time. We were able to talk to them. We were able to ask them questions. They promoted us a lot, which helped us grow a ton. And they and they promoted us organically, which 
I'm so eternally grateful for and like everyone that is still a part of the community or has ever been a part of the community I'm eternally grateful for because not many companies can say that, especially tech companies. And that is what I never want to lose with Rella. So we're actually working on prioritizing that again because I think it kind of fell flat the past few months. But we are focusing on making community one of our main focal points increasing our attention, improving the current product rather than just like adding random features and like actually experimenting with what people want to see and what they don't want to see or what they like and what they don't like. And then also introducing a clear onboarding process. Because again, a lot of people came from the beginning to our app and they knew what we were doing because we were building in public. They followed me on Instagram. They followed us on social media. But now people are discovering us that don't know who I am. They don't know what Rella is beforehand. And it's kind of confusing. So we want to make sure that it's very clear. So those are the, some of the things that we're focusing on now and focusing on community again, because I think it's something that other companies cannot replicate. You can't replicate community. Sure, you can create a tool that is a competitor that's similar, but you cannot replicate the community. And we've noticed with our early cohorts, they have the highest retention because they actually you know, feel involved in the product and they were involved in the product versus people that are coming on now, they're not involved in the product. They're downloading it, they're onboarding and they're like, what is this? So we really want to focus on bringing back community. And if you're listening to this and you want to be a part of it, like, please follow us, DM us. We want to have you involved like every step of the way. And we just want to make it feel like you can actually reach out to us and that we're real humans that care about you that are answering rather than just like a robot customer service person. Because it actually is us. Like it's me, it's Natasha, it's Mackenzie. Like we are the ones that are emailing you back and answering your DMs. And and we care so much about the people that use our product. So that's kind of what we're focusing on now. But we definitely had to learn that as we like launch and we're, you know, dealing with customers and users in real time. So that's kind of where we are at right now. And of course, I could go into so much more detail on like month by month, I can give you detail and I can give you such a big recap on it. But that's kind of where we are in terms of the product. Now I want to talk about fundraising. So we raised a million dollars in our pre-seed round. It's the first time I've actually like announced announced it on social media. So I'm going to do an Instagram post. I'm going to do some TikToks. I'm going to make a YouTube video. I'm going to do all that. But I wanted to make this long form content. This like hour long, however long this is going to be podcast episode so that I can have this to kind of like refer everyone back to if they want something a little bit more in depth. So we raised a million dollars. And if you are someone that is listening and you're like, what does that mean? Why do you need to raise money? A million dollars is a lot of money. What is this? I want to explain it to you because I don't want you to feel like, oh my God, why don't I know what that is? Because when I tell you I knew nothing about startups, I knew nothing about venture capital, nothing. Like, yeah, I think I would see headlines every now and then of like, this startup raised $20 million. But I had no idea what that meant. I didn't know the process. I didn't know. I thought maybe you need to know someone or I don't know. I didn't even know the type of companies that needed to raise money. Like when I didn't know anyone that had raised money, no one, not a single person in my life has ever been either on the investor side of things or they've never been on the startup side of things. My dad is an entrepreneur in the sense where he has his own company, but it's a small business. Like it's just him. You know, he doesn't have anyone really working for him. He's never raised money from investors. Like everything is just him. So it's very different than the startup ecosystem where you do raise money and you, you know, build out a team and are like scaling this software product. So I want to talk about what does it mean to raise money? Like who needs to? So to be clear, not every business needs to raise money. Mom and pop shops, boutiques, coaching, small businesses. Like if it's just you and you can do everything on your own at first, like you do not need to raise money. So when you raise money, you give up equity. So essentially you have to answer to your investors. It is not just you anymore. Yeah, I can say I work for myself. But at the end of the day, I report back to my investors. No, they're not telling me what to do every day. And they're honestly like very supportive and they let me run the company. But not every investor is like that, where some investors want to be very involved and they want to be very hands-on and you are reporting to them at the end of the day. So it isn't 100% you. And of course, it depends on if they get board seats or not. At this round, no one has board seats besides the founders. But in the future, as we raise later rounds, we will need to give away board seats. And that's when they actually have control of the company. So right now, I am in control. My co-founders are in control of the company. But in the future, when we give up board seats, they are going to be in control of the company. So 
you have to understand that when you go the route of venture capital and you decide to take money from investors, you are giving up your power. And so that needs to be something that you need to be okay with in order to grow. And if that is not something that you need, if you are fine with scaling and growing at a slower pace, but still very successful, like traditional small businesses, then don't raise money. Like it's not a badge of honor. I think a lot of times people think like, oh my God, raising money is the success story. And it's not. Most companies that raise money still end up failing. That does not make you successful. But in order to scale certain companies and to grow, a lot of times you need venture capital money because you don't have a million dollars lying around, you know? So you need that capital in order to become successful. But raising money does not equate to success. Obviously, I'm so incredibly proud of my team. I'm so happy we ended up raising because it's going to allow us to reach these milestones that are going to make us successful. But it does not mean that we are successful. So I just want to make that like very clear. So typically companies that need to like scale quickly and need a lot of capital to get started are the ones who raise money. So for us, we needed to raise to be able to grow quickly, hire developers, build out a team and just create a software tool that's helping creators manage their business. Creating a piece of software is incredibly expensive because of the people that you need on board. Engineers are a lot of money. Yes, I have technical co-founders, which made us incredibly scrappy for as long as we were. Like we raised money I think later than maybe some companies would at the stage we were because I have technical co-founders. So they were able to build without getting paid, but eventually they need to get paid, you know, so we needed to raise money. And as we grow, we're going to need to hire more developers and developers and good developers are freaking expensive. Like they are not cheap. So we knew that we needed to go the route of raising money. And If you can, I know some software companies still are bootstrapped. They start making revenue from the beginning and they can support themselves. Another thing to think about is speed, because if you are building something and you have a lot of users and you're able to do it yourself, like maybe you're technical and you're building this out yourself and you're like, I don't want to give up my power. You also have to think about speed because if you're gaining a lot of traction, let's say you built everything yourself, you have tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of users on your platform. If someone else sees that, sees your success and sees oh, this is a good idea. They could actually take that, become a competitor, raise money and grow at a much faster pace because they have the capital where you, yeah, you had the initial idea, but you're slower because you're only like one or two people and you didn't want to raise money. So that's also another thing to think about is just the ability to scale at a quicker pace than others. Because once you start getting noticed, other people might come in, raise money and then just like take away your customers and your users. So that's also just Another reason why I think some people raise money. You have to think about this from an investor standpoint. Who are they investing in? They're not going to invest in a company that only has the capability of becoming a million-dollar business. They want you to become a billion-dollar business. Does your company have the potential to become a billion-dollar company? For us, the answer was yes. The creator economy is growing so quickly. Software has the ability to scale so much. Eventually, we could expand outside of just creators and go into, you know, other demographics of people. But yeah, like I fully believe that we can become a billion dollar company. I fully believe that we can become the project management tool for content creators. I want to be like the Shopify for content creators. Not Shopify in terms of like selling stuff necessarily, but like when you start an e-commerce store, what do you do? You go on Shopify or when you become a freelancer, you download HoneyBook or, you know, things like that. Like I want to be that, but for content creators. And I definitely think that that has the potential to become a billion dollar company because the creator economy is multi-billion dollar industry. Like it's huge. And so that is why I knew that we were on the right track to raise money from venture capitalists and from venture capital firms and angel investors versus small businesses don't necessarily have that potential because how much money you bring in is directly equated to the time that you're putting in or the hours in the day and the amount of people that you employ. So for example, when I was doing coaching, no matter what I wanted to do, like I could not see 50 people in one day. I could only see like eight people in one day because every single coaching call was one hour. So if I wanted to scale, that would mean that I need to hire more people so that they could then focus on those other clients that I can't focus on because there's only 24 hours in a day. And that is a lot harder. It's not impossible, but it's a lot harder to be a billion dollar company when in order to grow, you need to constantly hire. If you look at Instagram, for example, Instagram was bought for a billion dollars when they were only 11 people. Like that is insane. 11 people working at Instagram and they were bought for a, a 
billion dollars. That just kind of shows you the potential of software. So that's another thing that I kind of wanted to throw in. So once we had a product in the market is when we felt comfortable going to institutional investors and deciding to raise money. So in the beginning, I want to be clear, I did not know what I was doing. I was not involved in this world whatsoever. Like, again, I cannot stress this enough. I didn't know anyone that had a startup. No one in my family did. So not involved in that world at all. When we realized that we needed to raise money, I got advice from people. I listened to some podcasts, but I'm a person that jumps head first. So I jump head first and then I learn. So I just kind of started reaching out to people and being like, hey, I'm raising our pre-seed round. I'd love to talk to you. And the advice that I got later on that I was hearing was like, start with people that you don't actually care that much about. Create a list of a bunch of angel investors and a bunch of VC funds and practice your pitch on the people that you think are a long shot or like you don't really fit into their thesis as much or you don't want their money as bad as like some other people. And then those people you should reach out to once you've had a lot of practice. I did the opposite. I found people I wanted to invest and I reached out to them first thing and had so much confidence going into this because I was like, I know this product. I know this is a good idea. Like, I can't wait to share it with you guys. People also told me to start with angel investors because they were the easiest people to convert. The thing about angel investors, it's they're individuals that just have a lot of money. It's not like a company. But what I found hard was that like, I didn't know these people. I think angel investors are great if you know them and if you are in a network with a lot of high net worth individuals. But for us, we didn't know any angel investors. Like, I don't know anyone who has, you know, a bunch of money lying around to just invest into startups that are really risky. Like, this pre-seed is probably the riskiest bet that you'll make because, you know, you don't even really have, like, product market fit or anything like that. You're really investing in the team. So I didn't know any angels. So I didn't know necessarily who to reach out to. And I didn't know how to find them. Because again, I was going into this blind. So what I did was I kept a list of Every venture fund I wanted to reach out to, every angel that I happened to stumble across on ClickUp, and then I would have a status update. So did I email them? Did I follow up? When did I do that? And I would have like calendar dates on when I needed to follow up next. And I would have notes on there with like how the conversation went and what they said. And if they declined, that would be a status update. So I just had everything in ClickUp just to store because you definitely need to be organized in this process because let me tell you, you're talking to a lot of people. And I recommend it because I had a status update to follow up. I recommend that you follow up with people until they give you an answer. If that is 10 emails, send 10 emails. They will eventually answer you. I was annoying. You know, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to be annoying. No, you need to be persistent. That is what you need to be because they're going to give you an answer eventually. And you want to make sure that you know, is it a yes or is it a no? So be persistent and follow up as many times as you need to. Of course, space those follow-ups. Don't do them like every single day, but like Every week, I would send a follow-up until they gave me an answer. And most of the time, if they're not answering you, it's probably going to be a no. But that doesn't mean that it's going to happen every single time. I spoke with someone who followed up seven times. And the seventh time, they ended up investing. So don't be scared to be annoying or persistent or whatever you want to call it. And now I want to tell you how long it took us to get our first check. So again, like I said, we had that 165000 from friends and family, myself, the equity-free grants. The money was running out. I mean, by the time we reached our first check, it was kind of like, it was to the point where my co-founders were like, listen, we don't have money coming in. We're living off of like our savings. I was thankfully still making money from social media, but I mean, everyone was relying on me. And I was like, oh my God, like we need to get our first check in. And I had this mindset the entire process. It's not if, it's when. And so I always knew we were going to raise money. I just was like, God, when? Please, please let it be soon. Like, it's all in your plan, I know. But like, please, God, like, let us have our first check soon. It took us six months to get our first check. I spoke with over 200 people before we got our first check. And here's how we did it. So I kept a list of people that I wanted to reach out to on ClickUp, like I said. And how I found these people was one, LinkedIn. I would just look up like pre-seed venture capital on LinkedIn and see who came up. I would also Google pre-seed funds or early stage funds. And then I also got a membership to Crunchbase. I highly recommend Crunchbase. It's like 300 something dollars a year. It's expensive, but it's worth it because you are able to find out so much information from other companies and other people that have raised and venture funds. So on Crunchbase, I would look at creator economy startups. So people in my industry. So whether if you're a creator economy, you can look up creator economy startups. If you are healthcare, if you're fintech, whatever it is, look at similar companies to yours, like not necessarily direct competitors, because investors aren't going to invest in a direct competitor to you because then like 
they want one of you to do well. You know, they're like banking on one of you. So I would look at similar companies, not direct competitors or companies, at least in the industry. And I would see who their investors were. And that's how I found people that I wanted to reach out to. So if this company invested in this other creator economy startup, they clearly believe in the creator economy. So I'm going to reach out to them. So that's how I did that. And I would reach out to people through either their website, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And I would just kind of like assume and assess which one would get the highest response rate. If it was an individual person, I usually would do Twitter or Instagram or LinkedIn. And this is because I am verified on Instagram. So I thought I would have a higher success rate. Usually investors are not influencers on Instagram. So it's not like they're getting a bunch of DMs a day. Like they have like 3000 followers, you know, so I was like, I think I have a higher chance of getting a response through Instagram DMs. Or Twitter actually works surprisingly well. I would start interacting with their tweets. I would start DMing them on Twitter and also LinkedIn. The website is usually not the best way. So website was kind of like last resort if I felt like that was the only way to do it. I also created a Twitter account when I started fundraising because everyone told me that investors and founders are on Twitter and they definitely are. So I created a Twitter account and started tweeting and started like following only people in the startup world so I could see what investors were saying. I could respond to them. I could connect with different investors and founders and people love to talk to each other on Twitter. So I actually have connected with a ton of people through there. And I've met a lot of people in startup ecosystem through Twitter, through literally just responding to tweets and, you know, tweeting like once a month, I feel like and like following people and DMing them. So definitely get on Twitter if you're in the startup space. And then I would also connect with other founders in the industry and not like, yeah, I would connect with other creator economy startups, but I would also just create with other startups that were recently like raised a pre-seed round. And I would reach out to them. I would just message them and be like, hey, I see that you're a founder. I'd love to connect with you to talk about, you know, your raise. Like we're going through a pre-seed round ourselves. And also like, I'd love to help you if I can with anything like social media related. Like I would try to offer them something in return as well. So I didn't feel like I would just taking up their time. But what I realized is that people are incredibly nice and kind and willing to talk to you because they they were in that same boat and they know that feeling. So I would talk to those founders. They would give me incredible advice. Founders are actually the ones that gave me the best advice because they obviously recently went through it. So talk to other founders and then I would ask those founders to introduce me to their investors. And they did. Like they were very kind. They would say, send me a forwardable email and I'll forward it to them. So then what I did is I would draft an email that they could forward that kind of shared a small little blurb about us, our traction, our pitch deck and a little bit like about our story in very, very, very concise. And then they would forward it to their investors and half the investors would say, no, not interested. And maybe the other half would say that they were and we would set up a meeting. And so getting in contact with investors through founders in their portfolio is probably the easiest way and the best way to do it. Because if you ask another investor that you speak with to introduce you to an investor, the first question they're going to ask is, oh, did you invest in this company? And then that investor is going to say, oh, no, I didn't. And then they're going to say, well, why not? And they're already going to start poking holes. You're going to come into the meeting with reasons why not to invest versus reasons to invest if a founder introduces you because the founder obviously is only saying good things about you. So always try to ask for strategic introductions. You don't want your introductions to come from people who did not invest that had the opportunity to because that's just kind of going to be a red flag. So ask other founders for introductions to their investors. That is how I found all of my investors. So the first investor actually was through someone messaged me. I don't know if it was a subscriber of mine, but messaged me on some social media channel saying, hey, I'm a female founder. I'd love to connect. I took every meeting. At this point when I was fundraising, I was like, I'm taking every meeting with every founder and every investor because I don't know what's going to come out of this. And that's another piece of advice that I actually got. It was not to do that. People were like, you need to be strategic with your time. You can't say yes to everyone. But I just was like, I don't know what's going to come out of this. Like, If I don't say yes, like I might miss an opportunity. And so I was incredibly burnt out. I was working long hours. I had no time. Like There were some days where I felt like I didn't even eat because I didn't have time for lunch. And I started having to put a lunch break in my calendar because I literally was on meetings every single day, all day long, and I felt so overwhelmed. But that's what I had to do. So I said yes to every meeting. So this one girl reached out to me, said she was a female founder. I took the meeting with her. She was not a founder that was raising money. She was like, oh, yeah, we're, you know, it's just like me and my husband that are doing this. Like we are both developers. We are not going down the venture route. But my friend recently went through YC and also recently raised money. Do you want me to connect you with him? I said, yes. The word of the year is yes for me. Said yes to her to introduce me to him. He introduced me. He gave me such great advice. He went through my pitch deck. He reviewed it. He gave me advice on that. And then he was like, if you want me to introduce you to my investors, let me know. 
So he introduced me to some of his investors and one of those investors ended up investing in us. And it was the best day ever. And then that investor introduced us to our other three investors that ended up coming in because once you have the first check, it is so much easier to get the rest of them because especially if you have a reputable investor on the cap table. And this was a venture fund who actually he introduced us to two other venture funds that ended up investing and then put in a good word at the third one that ended up investing an even bigger check than he ended up investing. So he kind of was like the lead. And he introduced us to those venture funds, put in a good word. And because he was reputable, because people trusted in him, they invested like right away. Like we had one meeting and they had invested. So it was a lot easier to get money once we had the first check in. And then after that, we were actually only looking to raise 750000 and we had raised 600000 at that point. And it took actually kind of a long time to raise the remaining one fifty. And at this point, like the market was continued to go down. Like we raised our first check August of this year is when the first check hit. And then the last check didn't come until October. So the 600000 all came in August. And then the last... 400,000 came in October, but we actually were only planning on raising 150. We didn't want to raise a million. And our last investor came in and said that he wanted to put in 400,000, close the round. And we said yes, because it was such a strategic fit and it was such a great fit. And we were just so ecstatic and over the moon that we were oversubscribed, which was incredible. So that investor, we actually met through another founder that I had connected with. I had connected with the founder. He introduced me to an investor. And then that investor, you know, was rolling on to, be- or to become a principal at this VC fund. And so she introduced me to that fund and they invested. And so it's all through connections and it's all through networking. And if you are raising money, you are in for just the biggest, like, networking 101 that you will ever experience. Like you have to become good at networking. Even if you're not an extrovert, like I am not an extrovert. I became so great at reaching out to people, talking to people, following up to people or following up with people because that is what you have to do. So that is how we got our check. And I just did some bullet points on things I learned that I'm going to rapid fire through this because again, I don't want this episode to be like two hours long, but things I learned throughout the process. Number one, honesty is better than intense FOMO. You are going to hear the advice that you need to give investors FOMO. And while I agree with you, you need to give some FOMO. You also cannot be like an asshole about it, which I've seen some people do, where it's like, listen, you better get in next week or else like we're closing the round and leaving you out. If you don't have actual investors and that's not true, you're going to look like an idiot when then a month later, you're still raising money. And those investors are going to be like, what happened to the week, you know? So you have to give a little bit of FOMO with being like, listen, we're talking to other investors, but we're looking to close around. We'd really love to have you on. To me, that is enough where maybe some people will disagree with me. But I think people, especially in a market right now where money is drying up and people are not writing checks as frequently, you cannot bullshit them and you cannot tell them like you're in or you're out. Like you better write the biggest check or else I'm leaving you in the dust because we got other investors lined up when that is just not true. So Honesty is definitely better than FOMO, even though I've heard so many people say otherwise. I just always felt that it was better. And with our investors, one thing that they've always mentioned to me is that they are really appreciative of how honest I am and how I'm like willing to say like, hey, yeah, you know, we're not really doing this right. Like we need to work on this because if you're constantly being like my product is perfect, everything is perfect. It's like, okay, then why do you need money? Like, no, things are not perfect. Like, this is what we're working on. This is why we need money. Like, this is what we're thinking, but we'd love your feedback. Like, I was just incredibly honest with my investors, and I think that they really appreciated that. Number two, it takes time. Like I said, I spoke with over 200 people. It took six months before we got the first check-in. So much rejection. Over 200 people told me no. Like, that is so much rejection. You have to not take it personally, and you have to realize that this is just the name of the game. So start fundraising before you think that you actually need to fundraise. Number three, people are genuinely nice and willing to help. That is something that I thought I was going to go into this and people were going to be so mean, and they weren't. Like, every investor I've spoken with has been super nice besides one investor who was actually another woman, which I was really disappointed in. (laughs) But... Yeah, like every investor was so incredibly kind and every founder I spoke with was so incredibly kind and willing to help. Number four, I never felt like I was taken less seriously because I was a woman. Obviously, there is pattern matching. Women get way, way, way less money from VC funds. I'm not saying that there is not bias. I'm not saying that there's not discrimination. It's even worse if you look at the statistics for people of color. I am just saying from my personal experience, I was not ever 
outwardly taken less seriously. However, I am sure that there are some biases that some investors passed on because they didn't see another 25-year-old influencer woman who does social media, you know, that has run a successful company. So maybe that's like a bias that they have that they decided to pass on me for. There definitely is pattern matching in the venture world, but never outwardly was someone like, you're dumb because you're a woman. Or never did I feel disrespected. And I also didn't feel like ever sexualized. That might sound weird, but I've heard of a lot of women that investors are incredibly creepy and they're asking them on dates and they're making really inappropriate comments. And I'm just so grateful that my experiences were not like that. Not to say that they won't be like that in the future, but so far they were not like that. So I don't want women going into this thinking that it has to be like that because it doesn't. Number five, you need to believe in what you're building more than anyone else. Like you need to be so confident in your product because if you're not, then why would an investor be confident in it? Number six, as a founder and CEO, you need to be a storyteller. Pitching is all about telling a story. It's not telling a fake story. Don't tell like a fairy tale, but you need to tell a story. You need to share why you are the person to build this. What story made you like come up with this? What was the origin? And then how are you going to take this to a billion dollars? So the story needs to be good. There needs to be a beginning, a middle, an end. Like there needs to be just a captivating story, especially at this stage, which is the pre-seed round. (laughs) Number seven, say yes to meetings and introductions and also ask for introductions. Be very shameless with your networking. I think that's pretty self-explanatory based on what I've said so far. Number eight, if an investor wants to invest, it's going to be quick. I had spent like three months speaking with some investors and they ended up never investing versus every single investor that I spoke with that ended up investing decided within a week. So just keep that in mind. If they want to invest, they will. And then the last one, I don't even remember what number, I think number eight, you need to instill morale with your team because there's going to be moments where you guys are going to like feel that rejection and you're going to want to take it personally and you just can't, you cannot take it personally. And so as a CEO and as a founder, you're the one that needs to instill the morale with your team. So those were the things I learned. I would love to do a deep dive in any aspect of this podcast because this podcast episode is definitely a lengthy one. Uh, I'm going to do a YouTube video. I'm going to do TikToks, like I said, but I just want to say thank you so much for anyone that's ever been a part of the community that's used Rella. If you haven't used Rella, download it on the App Store, create your account. You can go to getrella.com. It's a totally free tool. We have some paid things that we're rolling out, but we'd love your feedback on it. And, you know, we're constantly looking to improve the product and building it to what we want to build it. Like it's still not the complete product. And I feel like it's never going to obviously be the complete product, but there's so much that we're looking to add. And I'd love your feedback on it. And if you got to the end of this episode, please DM me, screenshot this, post it on your story, let other people know, send this to other founder friends of yours. But I just, it's the biggest answered prayer was raising this million dollars. And we are so grateful and we're so excited. And I'll do another episode maybe on like the roadmap, like the trajectory, like where we're going afterwards with this. But yeah, I just wanted to say thank you so much. Like obviously 1 million does not mean that we are successful. Raising money does not mean we are successful. But when so few also female founders raise money, I feel like it's such an accomplishment. And I'm just so grateful for our community, for our team. And I don't know. It's just it's such a relief because now we're heads down and we're building and we're not focused on, you know, fundraising right now. So yeah, that was such a long episode. Oh my gosh, that's the longest solo episode I think I've ever done. I need to drink tea for my throat. But anyways, thank you guys for listening. And I'll see you guys next Monday with another episode of The Real Real Podcast. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Real Real. I hope that you enjoyed. And don't forget to rate, review, follow, or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. You can follow me personally on Instagram at Natalie Barbu and the podcast at The Real Real Podcast. I'll see you next Monday. Hey, my name is Lovan Roomf, and I've been working my ass off as a celebrity stylist by day and a podcast host by night. At the Low Life Podcast, it's all about keeping it real. We're talking fashion, beauty, to religion, sex, drugs, mental health. I mean, there's no topic off limits here, and vulnerability is mandatory. You can find my podcast, The Low Life, that's L-O, no W, everywhere and anywhere you listen to your podcasts. New episodes are out every Thursday. We'll see you then.